G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. I am your host, Rick Mirabella, and we're here as always thanks to runners.com and Runners Ultimate. Your runners coach anytime, anywhere. Now today on the Coach's Corner, we welcome a man who feeding him has more letters after his name than I've had hot dinners. His passion, expertise and research interests lie in the area of neurophysiology, of exercise and he specialises in the technique of transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS, if you don't mind. Listeners, we welcome Dr. Dawson Kidgel. Thank you. That's a nice little wrap. <laughs> now, I know you've done a thousand more things than that, but I just wanted to, I guess a lot of people in worldwide will know you for TMS. Dawson's been on, I'm not sure if he knows how many exactly, but he has been published so many times. How many times have you been? Uh, so 101 <laughs> journal papers, written two books, writing a third book. And four book chapters. So that you're getting an idea, listeners, if you are out of the research field of the kind of unit we're dealing with, just a very rare specimen. He knows a lot about a lot. And from I've known Dorse for four or five years and the conversations are always fascinating for me because a lot of it is over my head and that makes me go to the research and try to read. But what Dawson usually writes, I try to I try to take it in, but sometimes it is quite quite hard to, to anyone in, in any of our fields. So with Dorse today, he's just going to bring some of his research. We're going to start with TMS and other stuff into the applied field. So for you triathletes, you distance runners, you field sport athlete, Aussie rules, soccer, netball, and overseas in the in the power sports, which Dorse has done a lot of really good work with. You, you overseas, fast twitch NFL type athletes. Dorse is your man. And he look, he'll tell you, why they're doing what they're doing in the lab. And it's always good from an outsider. Like we all are as coaches and athletes outsiders to what these guys, these professors do in the labs. But firstly, Dorse, let's just go back. The, just give me a three-minute succinction on your last 25 years in the game, mate, and, and how you became purely in, in buried in research because you certainly didn't start out that way. You started in a very similar field to myself. So take me back to a young 19, 20, 21-year-old Dawson Kidgel and then bring me forward to how we got here today. Sure, I could probably take you back further than that. Um, so growing up, I've always been involved in sport and elite sport. Um, my background's obviously in martial arts. And, you know, one of the important things in life, I guess, is is to, to question things and don't just accept what people say. Um, and that was sort of instilled into me quite early on through my sporting activity. Um, and that made me question things. So from a very early age, um, from a sports science perspective, I got engaged quite early. Um, you know, I even remember back in year 11 and 12 doing, like in VCE, doing your common assessment tasks on left field sports science, um, which was very unique at that point in time in the 90s. Um, so it really emanated from there, um, which then drove me to, to do well in, in high school. Um, and my goal was to get into sports science, um, and I did that. So I got into what was called human movement back then, um, which is now classically exercise and sports science. Um, and during that period, I actually had some really good lecturers. Um, and one in particular was, um, Sally Clark, who was the head of, um, physiology at the AIS, um, and she kind of got me interested in, in questioning why we do things. 
um, and what science can actually bring. Now, science can be googly goop, um, but in the real world, it actually gets applied quite nicely and it's just understanding how we can actually apply it. So I did that, I did my human movement degree, um, obviously had a passion for, for research. So I tacked on an extra year, which was an honours year, um, which was interesting. And during that time, I was working as a personal trainer and, and working at Eastern Rangers Football Club at the time as a fitness advisor. Um, and then an opportunity arose in 1998. Funny story, actually. When I was doing my personal training, I was training a guy called Dr. Noel Blundell, who was the head sports psychologist for Tennis Australia. And he obviously liked what I was doing and my passion and my enthusiasm and my inquisitive nature about how we should be training people. So I ended up getting a job at um, the Melbourne International Tennis School, um, which was run by himself and a guy called Michael Barock, who was um, a professional tennis player. Um, and how that eventuated was I was training these athletes um, and at the same time, Dennis Pagan was in the gym that we were training these athletes and kind of liked what I was doing as well. And um, I managed to get my way into North Melbourne Footy Club. So I went into North Melbourne with Dennis um, in 98, 99, and then he obviously moved on to Carlton. Um, I then went over to Western Bulldogs um, when Peter Rode was the coach doing strength and conditioning and sports science. And then I moved over to Carlton and stayed there for a couple of years. So that was basically what I did. But throughout that whole time, I was still studying. So I went on and did a master's in, I call it exercise neuroscience. It was really neuromuscular physiology. And my master's was on looking at, if you precondition a muscle, can you make it improve its output? So for instance, we call this post-activation potentiation. So in a classic, everyone understands this. And I'll give you an example. As a kid, you would have pushed against the wall or the bedroom door pushed against the, the wall as hard as you could, lifted your arms and your arms felt really, really light. So when you precondition a muscle, you change the physiological activity of that muscle, which enables you to produce more force, hence why your arms feel light. Um, so we explored that. Um, and the reason why we explored that is um, I have a real interest in strength and Everyone laughs at me because I travel all around the world and I do all these invited presentations on how we get strong. And everyone goes, well, it's easy, just lift heavy. Well, the reality is this. Strength is related to quality of life. People who are weaker live less, so their life expectancy is less. Their functional capacity is reduced. Um, so that basically means as they get towards the end of their lifespan, getting up out of a chair, in and out of a bath, off, up and down off the toilet, um, picking things up and just general mobility is reduced as a function of reduced strength. So the other side is when you become injured, the first thing you lose is muscle strength. And in fact, we've done studies where we've immobilised limbs, um, so we've put them into a plaster cast, and within one week you've lost 50% of your strength. So that change in strength, so that reduction, that detrimental effect is actually not due to changes in the size of your muscles. Your muscle isn't actually getting smaller. There's detrimental effects in the way in which your brain can activate the muscle. Um, and this is what strength training does. When you engage in strength training, you get a very large increase in strength. And in fact, you can improve your strength by about 50 to 54% within four weeks. And there's no change in the actual size of the muscle. So this tells us that 
The only mechanism that's responsible for this change would have to be changes in the nervous system. Now, the nervous system is complicated. It starts in your brain and finishes at your muscle. So there's many elements within that pathway and we've been trying to work out which elements in that pathway from your brain to your muscle is the primary site responsible for that change in strength. So in many ways, what I'm doing now links right back to that concept of post-activation potentiation that I was looking at in my early 20s. Um, so it's pretty much been a common story since I was about 15, 16. It's, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And we speak about the nervous system as athletes so often, but then when you hear Dawes explain it so simply, um, like it is a very complicated um, part, part of a, an athletic system. But for Dawes to say that kind of stuff in the late 90s, oh, you overseas listeners as well, the North Melbourne Football Club and Western Bulldogs Football Club and Carlton, it's the professional Australian rules footy league. So it's, it's the elite of the elite of AFL football that he was heading up the SNC and also North Melbourne won the premiership, yes, in 1999, which is, were you around for the flag? No, it was around that time. Around so that time, yeah. it was around that time of this is the elite footballer. So in Australia, these guys are are the elite of the elite athletes that Dawes was working with. So he was always applying it at the elite level. All this kind of this stuff in the research lab at that time in your early twenties, mid twenties, you it was always calling you, and it was always this neurological side. Wasn't mm. it? So, so the ability, I guess, with the as it developed, when did you start? So you got your PhD in now what do we call it neurophysiology neurological yes yeah, so i looked at basically the neuro the neuromuscular adaptations yeah. to different types of strength training and dorsey's big and he said it the whole time i've known him on like the brain controls all as we know mm -hmm. but he, very very passionate and about driving that which for us coaches is is so good to know because I, I think people get mixed up in in muscle over movement sometimes yeah. which it's it's definitely movement over muscle mm. absolutely that controls the strength that the way you use the analogies there were great that was fantastic so brings us to i guess you're in your 30s and 40s you continue to obviously be a very high elite uh martial artist zendu kai is that what, what sorry, I, mate? yeah so i started in zendu kai yeah. um and graded to to sandan yeah. which is third dan so you're a black belt Yes, and I'm also a black belt in Joshiman Shorinru, which is a traditional Japanese martial art. Um, and interesting, I was the first Australian black belt. In that discipline? Yeah, in that mm -hmm. discipline, because it was um, traditionally just taught in Japan. In right. Japan, And then um, a guy I was actually lecturing at Deakin University um, was from Japan and happened to be a um, fourth dan. Um, he was studying sports science and you know, we got talking and turned out that he wanted to open up um, that particular martial art in Australia. So I trained with him, went over to Japan, um, got my first day in that and then we opened up here in Australia. Wow. And that was back in 2009. Is there any parallels? You're clearly ridiculously disciplined and obviously quite talented in that field of sport, but is there any parallels between you, you, to do what you've done to have a hundred over a hundred publications and books two books three nearly three the the discipline mentally are you use that passionate about both these things so or always are they different in a way or can you can you marry the no, two it's, it's 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 directly related yeah so um in many ways in in martial arts you're trained you're trained for attention to detail you're trained to to manipulate the smallest aspect of movement to gain the the greatest outcome um, and research is exactly that. So when you look at research and, 
and trying to answer a problem, it's what we call a deductive process. So you come up with an idea, um, and let's just use pap, you know, post-activation potentiation as an example. So the, the idea would be if I did a heavy load squat, let's just say it was at you know 90% of my maximum uh, repetition, so my 1RM, and then I did a vertical jump. For whatever reason, by preconditioning the muscle, you jump higher. So the hypothesis would be, what are the mechanisms that enable you to jump higher by preconditioning the muscle compared to when you don't? So you start doing a deductive process. So you start to think about, okay, so if I want to measure the nervous system, the outcome of a vertical jump is not a measurement of the nervous system. So it's not really telling us anything. So we need to then probe into, and maybe we start off at the, the muscle level. Well, what happens to the level of muscle activation? So we can stick little electrodes like they stick on your heart in the hospital, exactly the same. We stick them over the muscle and we can measure the electrical activity. Um, and what we tend to find is when you precondition the muscle, the resting electrical state is higher compared to if you hadn't conditioned. So for whatever reason, the input to that muscle, which comes from your brain, is increased. So therefore, you must be able to activate the muscle more quickly. So you therefore, you jump higher. So that's one way we could answer part of the question. Yeah. But the other way is I know that the brain mm. sends messages to that muscle so I can then I can actually record those messages um, through a number of techniques and one of them would be transcranial magnetic stimulation. Which brings us to transcranial magnetic stimulation. Now, Dawes took great delight about a fortnight ago in chucking some, chucking some what do we call them, on my head? Well, we placed the... Um, he thought it was a great joke. It's like a coil. Coils. Um, Put coils on my head. I'd gone in for a separate issue, just to Monash University there, which is a great setup. And um, Dawes called me in. He goes, oh, you thought it was Christmas. He could call me in and just experiment on me. He made my muscles move every left way. What controlled you know, your brain. He controlled my brain. It was quite, it was quite scarily fascinating all at one time. <laughs> but onwards from that. So the TMS system... I'm fascinated by that, and I feel like our listeners will be as well, because if we uh, listen to this podcast, you guys are fascinated in the way the human body moves. So, tell me about the when TMS started coming in, like when yep. you, you guys started using it, and and I guess over the last decade where it's gone, and and what you're trying to, I guess for people like myself and other coaches and athletes, how we can extrapolate that to sure. to put into training programs. Um, so. Transcranial magnetic stimulation um, loosely yep. is a non-invasive technique to measure how your brain cells that control movement behave. Um, and this first came about in about 1980. So Baker and colleagues over in London um, who are physicists developed this machine um, and realised that you could place this coil it's just like a, a branding iron. So think of you know cows that get and sheep that get branded with that hot sort of H butterfly um, coil. We can place that onto different parts of the brain, pass an electrical current through, which is magnetic because it goes through some magnets, and it basically stimulates your brain cells, and we get to actually control your brain. Um, this has been used predominantly in medicine to treat depression. So um, there are now clinics all around Melbourne where you can get treated for depression by TMS and they can put it over parts of the brain. So normally, you know, near your forehead, um, which is associated with depression, they sort of zap you at about, when you hit the button once, it zaps you five times and sort of gets your neurons behaving the way they should be. 
what we do is we use just a single pulse and we can measure the um, part of the brain that controls our movement, which is the motor cortex. So the motor cortex um, is really easy to find. It's actually on top of your head in line with the ears. So if you've got your thumbs and put them on your ears and then put your middle finger on top of your head, that's exactly where it is. And then it comes around and it's organized in a very specific manner. So there's a section of nerve cells that control your upper limbs and then there's a section that controls your lower limbs and there's a section that control your face. So we can actually pinpoint what parts of the body we want to, to stimulate. So in your case, a fortnight ago, mm -hmm. I placed it, you know, four centimeters on the top of Rick's head across so he moved sideways four centimetres and it innovated his elbow muscles and his arm jumped. Um, now what this tells us is, is um, when we record these responses, um, we get these electrical signals and we just measure how big these are. Um, and the size of them tells us how excitable that part of the brain is to that particular muscle. Uh, and that's indicative um, of how many muscle cells you can actually activate. So obviously, if you wanted to be really, really strong, we'd look for a really big signal. Um, what we tend to find is, is when we apply this technique with people who've had a stroke, we get a really suppressed response or a small response because they can't activate the muscle, hence they can't move. Would that be the same for people with um, different neu neurological disorders? Yeah, so you see it in Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease and MS. And so if, if, you did though, if you did that test on a, on a Parkinson's sufferer, no matter if, you, if, if he or she was quite athletic and trained five days a week, you would still see a limited response there? You'd, you'd, you'd see a limited response, but what we're finding is that when you intervene with exercise, yeah, of course. you actually counteract those it's negative it's effects it's associated with the disease. Yeah, so particularly with Parkinson's disease, you can increase the excitability. So these neurons become more excitable. And what that means is they send more messages to the muscles. So if you send more messages to the muscles, you're more likely to get the movement correct. Mm -hmm. um, and what we find in Parkinson's disease is they have what's called blocking movement. So they'll be doing something and then they just stop midstream. Mm -hmm. um, and we find that that gets reduced because we're changing the excitability of that pathway through exercise. Really, really cool. With the testing, so if I'm, say you did put a genuine test on me two weeks ago um, and I am a uh, footballer or let's just call me a 10K runner, a 10,000 metre on the track or a triathlete, Olympic distance triathlete. Um, you could then give me some data to go away with and use in the weights room and then it'd come well, back and retest or how, yeah, how would that work? No, the other thing we can do is, um, and what we tend to do is, what will be more relevant to endurance training is is, is looking at your fatigue threshold. Um, so obviously with endurance sports, the ability to push through fatigue and train at a fatigue level and get all of those sort of peripheral adaptations in your heart, lungs and your muscles, we can actually quantify the effectiveness of your intervention on fatigue. So I'll give you an example. If I ask you to, you've all heard this, you know, you're sitting on the farm, you know, you're having a quiet beer, all of a sudden you see the tractor fall over and squash your kid. So you run over, you pick up the tractor, you, you chuck it 10 metres. Some people say that there's a force reserve in the human body that can only be tapped into under extreme conditions. So typically if I ask you to contract your muscles as hard as you can, you normally, normally don't. Okay, so there's some sort of um, force reserve. Now, that scenario is not necessarily correct. And one way we can use TMS is we can actually measure during a maximal voluntary contraction. So when we get you to squeeze your muscles as hard as you can against a resistance, we can stimulate your brain. Now, when we stimulate your brain, we get a little twitch of your, your muscle. Now, 
if you're doing that under maximal contractions, we should technically not evoke a twitch because your brain's activated all the muscle cells. But should we get a twitch that would tell us that you've had incomplete activation? Now, what happens with fatigue is that if we fatigue the muscle, so let's just say we do 500 repetitions of a bicep curl, get you to do a maximum voluntary contraction, stimulate your brain, what we find is a really large twitch because you've got fatigue. Now that large twitch is purely produced by the stimulation that we've produced on your brain. And that tells us that the site of fatigue is actually within your brain, not at your muscle level. So we can split fatigue into central fatigue and peripheral fatigue. Which we've spoke about before on this podcast on another Coach's Corner um, with the physiologist Luke McElroy. As endurance athletes, it is all about offsetting fatigue and preventing fatigue and obviously trying to eliminate fatigue for as long as possible, uh, especially you long-distance athletes, marathoners and above. And any, anyone that's running anything just around that lactate threshold, so half marathoners, marathons and really good triathletes at that Olympic distance, you got it's hard work and you, you're going to be on the edge like... Dorsey's saying the whole time, if you were to do 500 repetitions, it's, it's the same, contracting for 90 minutes to two hours. So really good stuff. And I guess as an athlete that you know that would be the case, so say I was in there and, I, and you said, look, you're fatiguing, then we go back to the training room and we say, what can we work on here? Yeah, so what you would do. Yeah. Stuff. yeah, so the thing about fatigue is you need to understand this. There's a very big difference between fatigue muscle fatigue defined by a physiologist versus muscle fatigue defined by a neurophysiologist. So for instance, fatigue broadly is defined as a decline in force output of a muscle, okay? Um, or power output. So if you look at running, obviously your running speed, your running economy, all becomes reduced, which is a sign of reduced muscle function or force production. Um, but when we do studies on fatigue, um, which is the easiest way to do it is to get, do a sustained contraction and get them to hold it for as long as they can with a given load. Um, we know that before there's a decrement in force, so before you start to fatigue at the peripheral level, so you get a decline in force output, there's a whole heap of stuff going on in your brain. And it makes sense. Your muscles can't function without input from your brain. So this is why we have what we call central fatigue versus peripheral fatigue. And central fatigue occurs much earlier than peripheral fatigue, which is all of those things you see in the functional outcomes. So you run slower, your head moves around, you don't get as much arm swing, your stride length's reduced. Before all that happens, there's stuff going on in your brain that's predictive of fatigue already. Can we, can we marry that in somewhere to what we speak about? Like I know this is getting hor with hormonal levels. I don't want to talk about the cortisol and all that kind of stuff, but is there, if an athlete has had a real bad week, Oh, like just horrible, like lack of sleep, nutrition, whatever, emotional, mental strength, depression, anxiety, all these things, and then has to present for an A race on a Saturday afternoon on the track. Um, that central fatigue, would that be, he'd be running a greater risk of, would he reach central fatigue at a quicker level or is that to totally different to the guy? So if he's got a, you know, an athlete in lane two that's just had a really nice week, he's slept well, he's feeling good, everything's great from an emotional standpoint, is there a difference in their central fatigues or am I going well, elsewhere? Well, no, there, there could be. Um, and you could easily examine that. And if if there's issues around anxiety and depression, there's going to be issues in, in um, neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. 
um, and that's obviously going to affect how much output you can produce yeah. to the to the muscle. So um, their sense of effort yes. is going to be probably less. Yeah. So in other words, what would not what would be deemed hard normally all of a sudden becomes harder. Yeah. So the the changes in the in the in the circuitry of the brain um, is telling them that the task they're doing is actually harder than what it what they're normally used to because of yeah. those factors you've talked about. That's a great answer. That's a great answer, and it's so common and it's real. It's, yeah, it's real. massively like real. It's, it's the, you can't you can't argue with what the brain does. It is it is very real. But um, you can control it. Yes. So, so and I'll give an example. Let's go. Um, th- th- this is a, a martial art example. So, for instance, we we often do mental tasks in grading where. You might just have to hold your arms out by your side for as long as you can. Now, where you choose to direct your focus, so how you choose to set your mindset will determine how well you're doing that task. So you can sit there. Most people get to a couple of minutes and think, oh, well, the pain in my shoulders is really unbearable. Um, now it's hurting my elbows. I just want to put my arm down. So they're focusing and directing all of their mind power to the negatives of the task. If you do the exact same thing and you hold it for the exact same amount of time and you ask everyone about their day and they just tell you about their day, before you know it, they're already holding it for five minutes. So where you choose to direct your attention and how you and we call this attentional focus, um, where you choose to what you choose to focus on will often determine your output. Now, I'll give you an example and you could probably back me up on this. My wife trains here and when it gets hard, she just gets in the zone. And then there'll be people, when it gets hard, they start bobbing around, looking around, looking up and down and thinking what the hell's going on. When you start to get to fatigue, you can push yourself that extra bit. And some people might be familiar with the central governor theory around fatigue. Um, and what we know is... Oh, but in there, we've got an episode called the central governor uh, in runners, runners Virtual and Runners Ultimate. So, I yes, yeah, so I love all Tim Noakes' work from that era. So the, the point is this, if you look at central governor theory, if you remove feedback about what you're doing in a time trial, you actually go further. So my point's exactly the same. I can hold my arms out here. I can have really bad sleep. I can um, have a bit of anxiety. But at the end of the day, when it comes to race day, it's how you choose to use your focus. Mate. If you want to focus on the negatives, then the negatives take over. And this is exactly what central governor theory is. And we've done studies on, on time trialling. And, and use TMS to actually quantify that. And what we actually did was we had a bunch of um, elite cyclists and we trained them, um, well, well, we tested them five days in a row and they basically did a time trial. So they cycled at... Look, I could be wrong here because it's going back a while. Something like between 70 80% of the VO2 max... Yep. Um, and they did that for um, 45 minutes and then they did a time trial to fatigue. Yeah. Um, and what we did is we had conditions around Tim Noakes' theory of central governor where we either gave them feedback on their peak power output, their heart rate and X, Y, Z, or we didn't. And we then stimulated their brain um, to the muscles that were cycling to work out, okay, if, if Tim Noakes' theory around central governor is actually a cortical phenomena, so a brain phenomena, we should be able to quantify that with TMS. Um, and we did. So when you provide the feedback, now when you provide feedback, that goes into another another side of sports science, which is called knowledge of results. 
So when you provide feedback during a task, you tend to do better. When you don't provide the feedback and you're relying on your own senses to predict what's going on, you tend to not do as well. So, and that's exactly what the central governor theory is. So often you'll hear coaches in hard training sessions yelling and screaming and kicking and bucking as a form of feedback to keep them going because you need to have a stress to the body to get that adaptation at that high level. Um, so it all kind of links in. It does link in, but it's all fascinating to why we do some of this stuff. So that result, that test result of those cyclists. So basically what pro- happened? Proven. Yeah. So, so basically when you're getting the feedback, you can sustain your workload for longer because the part of the brain that drives those muscles becomes more excitable. So that you is, have, you awesome. have, you have less inhibition. Um, so when we have inhibition coming out of the brain, it actually shuts your muscles down. So what we find is that that inhibition is reduced. Now, when you take, when you don't provide the feedback and it's up to you to determine it. And you're goes, hurting. And you're hurting. It mm-hmm. goes back to attentional focus. Mm-hmm. If you focus on the pain and the fact that Jesus Christ, this is hard, well then we get increased inhibition. So, so good. Um, and there's old, ways old, in which you can manipulate it. And you can. And this is why Dawson's stuff is so good. And I knew that he'd be all, so good on here. Like He has really made it simple for us to understand the whys and how often do we say stuff like don't wish to set away like pretend like we're doing another six more there's no need to if we start wishing the time away say you're in the middle of a mile rep or a, a 1000 meter rep and your wife is uh, ashlyn who was our very first guest on the deep dive by the way listeners and the thing about ash yes she's physically talented but mentally easily one of the strongest athletes and people i've ever met and also very relaxed so there's lots of things. If you go back and listen to that episode that you'll take out of her mindset to life is just phenomenal. And I'll, I think we ended up speaking about her mindset for half the app because she's just so, look, she's inspirational, but it's not about that. It's about trying to learn from people like that. And she, he's, a, he's a lady who has obviously done so much in academia as well, but not, we just spoke about her mindset half the time mm. because to do, like she swam the English Channel, she's done Rotten Ash, she's won, she wins every race. She just had a, a beautiful, congratulations, Doris, baby girl as well. And she's back winning races already just because she just gets in that zone or flow state or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I think it's more of a zone than the flow. Mm. I think she's, that's, we, we can talk about flow another time, mm. but I'll get you on that for that later. But this thing that Ashlyn can just sit on her pain threshold and just sit and sit and mm-hmm. sit because it's not a chore it's not another stressor. Well, it's 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 also, the, the, and the mindset's this: it's not forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the first thing, and people get tied up with, oh, you know, I'm looking here, I'm looking, oh, nothing's forever. Don't clock watch. So you don't need to to think that it's going to be forever. You just need to think: can you do the next second? And if you can do the next second, then you say, well, can I do the next second? And it all comes down to to what your brain is capable of doing, and hence why TMS is a really good tool to work out what your mind is actually doing and how it's affecting the function of your muscles apart from do you do you, there's the universities and they put these kind of testing out for for age group athletes and that or is that more of a obviously we can go and get our physiological stuff done like very easily a lactate threshold our vo2 max um is this kind of stuff really available yet for age group is not yet no not in, te- in terms of teammates just a testing yeah, no not not really i mean um it could be used i mean um well the other thing you, you could use is transcranial direct current stimulation so tt tdcs um so with, with tms what you could conceivably do is is work out how effective an intervention is in terms of the neuromuscular system so if you just like 
you know, doing a time trial to see if you've gotten fitter, we can then work out how the nervous system's adjusted as well. Um, cool. But the other thing you could do is actually during your training is apply low level electricity um, through your motor cortex while you're doing the training. While training? Yeah, so there's a technique called transcranial direct current stimulation. Um, now, this actually came through gaming. Say gamers yeah, right. would, um, to improve their reaction time and whatnot, they'd stick these electrodes onto their motor cortex. Yeah. Um, and they felt that they were improving their, their gaming. Um, now the way TDCS works, so transcranial direct current stimulation is, is um, we have very low levels of, electric, of, a, of an electrical current that passes through your skull by putting little electrodes um, over the part of the motor cortex that you're interested in. So for instance, if you want to look at your elbow muscles, biceps, um, you'd stick it over the bicep region. Then what happens is you've got two electrodes. One's a positive electrode and one's a negative electrode. So what we call an anode and a cathode. Now, when you stick the positive electricity over the motor cortex and the negative one over the opposite forehead, so where your eyeball is, so your superorbital region, um, it directs negative flow towards the positive flow and you get an increase in brain excitability. Um, if you reverse that montage, so you put the negative on the motor cortex and the anode onto the superorbital region of your forehead, you get a decrease in excitability. So naturally, this we started investigating the effects of TDCS, first of all, in stroke. Because what happens in stroke is you have, on the stroke-affected side, severe levels of inhibition, and then on the non-affected side, severe levels of excitation. So technically, we should be able to place the anode onto the affected hemisphere that's had the stroke and the cathode onto the non-affected and then reverse that and get some balance between excitation and inhibition. So that's where TDCS originated from originally, but I'm not really interested in stroke. No. Um, I'm interested in, in can we use TDCS during exercise? And would it be legal? It is legal. It is legal. Because, um, yes, it is legal and physiotherapists and whatnot can actually use this as an intervention now. That's so cool. it's been passed through the Therapeutic Goods Association. Um, but when we first started researching this, no. Like we, we, we did stuff that we didn't know what we are doing. But yeah, well, they would have thought you were crazy scientists as well. Well, we started sticking if on all different parts of the brain <laughs> and then, you know, we wanted to stimulate in the frontal region because that's important for cognitive control of exercise, yeah. but that started doing stuff to people's eyes. and. Yeah, um, well, Pioneers like you guys have to. But what we did do is we actually put it on during strength training. Yeah, so I'm going to get there. So, yeah. so say you, you, I want to get to force velocity stuff in a minute. Mm. But if we have an issue with someone's neuromuscular strength in any way, shape, or form, this kind of stuff while you're doing a one RM daddy, a three RM daddy, yep. like a box. A well, a box there's a couple of ways you can use it. Yeah. So, there's two ways, and Ashlyn does a lot of this as well. One way is. We've, we've toyed around with can we warm the brain up before exercise so if we place the tdcs electrodes onto the motor cortex and fire it up mm. and then take it off and then do our activity do we get a better response compared to if we don't well the answer is yes yes okay cool That's so you awesome. can warm up your brain if you like so it's for instance that. if you're a strength power athlete a sprinter often you'll see um you know, they're walking around the change with the headphones on. Well, guess what? You can buy these headphones now that have an array of TDCS electrodes. Wow. So you can actually fire your brain up, um, which is important because when you're looking at, um, say, sprint work, 
the, the reaction time becomes important. So the ability to send nerve impulses from your motor cortex to your muscles, basically the quicker you can do that, the, the quicker the muscle will contract. Therefore you have greater rate of force development, which means you have greater speed. Um, the other way you can do it is you can use it as a supplement to your training. So for instance, you can apply it on during your strength training. Um, and what we tend to find is that we get very big changes in how much inhibition is coming out of your brain into your muscles. So we actually reduce that inhibition and we find that you get stronger quicker. Wow. So then that leads into, you could use it into rehabilitation and, yeah, and stuff, stuff like the that. Stuff so we're going to, we're starting to look at it in um, hamstring injuries. Yeah. Yeah. So that's fascinating for the rehab. I was thinking that for the rehab game, that is going to change it if we, if we can get it right. Well, so the problem with, with particularly musculoskeletal rehab is, um, which is predominantly a unilateral injury. So it's on one side of your body. Um, when you have to go undergo periods of mobilization or, limited use or whatever the case may be, going back to my first point, mm. you're gonna lose 50% of your strength real quick. Um, Seven days, you said. Yeah, so what we have shown is that if you immobilize a limb and you apply the TDCS, you actually don't get the negative effects of the immobilization on the nervous system and you actually maintain your strength. Now, everyone knows in rehab, the quicker you get out of it is based upon how much strength you have going into it. So um, we could do I mean, we could talk about TDSS all day, oh, yeah, no, um, but there's, there's applications. Yeah. You can buy the machines for 500 bucks. Yeah, right. Um, so that's really cool. But there are some complications to it, but and that's I'll, another just, conversation. Before we get off this, yeah, I was going to ask that if I'm a, a team sport athlete, um, using it, is there any negative effects to using it in the weights room or a, or even pre-game? So there's no fatigue levels? No. There's no, no. No. And the reason why there's no fatigue is because the level of electricity that's passing into your brain is not enough to cause a movement okay so unlike tms where we stimulate your brain and we control it and we induce a movement you will get that central yeah. fatigue with that no. but what you can get is fatigue at the level of the of the nerve cell okay so typically um and we've done this we've mapped how long you should stick this stuff on your head for yeah. you shouldn't do it for more than 26 minutes because after 26 minutes your brain cells start to fatigue mm -hmm. and the excitability starts to drop off and the inhibition starts to go up, which means you're not going to be able to drive your muscles. So the sweet spot appears to be about 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. So um, That's cool. you could easily stick it on as a, as a warm up. Um, so what you'd want is about two milliamps um, of electricity. Team sport athletes, especially I'm talking an hour, I reckon. Yeah. Like sprinters, obviously, obviously mass, massive, massive mm. gains, but team sport efforts as well like that mm. that rate of force development is so crucial mm, exactly um that's fascinating stuff now we've spoken a bit about the i guess the enhancement of the neuroplasticity of the brain and you guys can tamper with that i guess over the journey you you could come from such a strength and power background like can you tell me more about like the the primary motor cortex it it all begins there it does yeah it does all begin there so and you've spoken I've, I've heard you have conversations with other different physios and and neuro um physiologists look at just your fascination with the primary motor cortex just spend a minute on that and then we'll move on to some applied well, stuff well the the primary motor cortex is the major output region of the brain that controls movement any pathology to the motor cortex prevents you from moving Take spasticity, for instance. So someone who's, who's um, had a stroke and they've got spasticity, their motor cortex is scrambled. 
So basically think of someone who's got a wrist contracture, so they're spastic through the elbow and the wrist. What it basically means is that their motor cortex is sending excitatory messages to the muscles that flex the wrist, but they're also sending excitatory messages to the muscles that extend the wrist. And what happens is you can't flex and extend at the same time, so you get stuck. So the motor cortex is what makes us move. The only way we can get better at exercise is that there must be changes in the motor cortex because that's the part that drives our muscles during movement. So if we train in any aspect, there should be a subsequent knock-on effect or a change in the way in which the brain controls the muscles and the joints during movement. And that's essentially why the motor cortex is so important. Can you remind us, the listeners, now I've got the vision in front of me, so I'm, it's easy endorses he's showing me, but can you remind the listeners where it is located? It's located on the top of your head. So if you were to get your thumbs and palpate the, you know, where your ear mm-hmm. creases and go to the top of your head, it's basically there and moves across to the side. And it literally all begins from there. Everything we do in life. In terms of movement. Yeah, movement. So yep. it all begins from there. And that, that kind of stuff is great to know as us because we are in the, in the game of movement. So for me, this is why I've been so, I guess, embroiled in endurance physiology and even an injury rehab and movement but when you've got someone like and i've always been at the side of the muscle or the obviously cardiovascular system dorsa's stuff does blow your mind and he he is very passionate about that and would probably always argue and to with good right that it does begin and like so injuries well, for say it's simple if, it's if the muscle's not working then yeah. the input to the muscle has to be altered irrespective of so yeah. my, my question is people should start to think outside of the muscle so, um, which means you need to be clever with your rehabilitation strategies. So, um, and I'll give you a quick example. Like during limb immobilization, the type of strength training, you can do a type of strength training, which is called cross education. You can tr- strength train the limb that's not immobilized. And we know that we get a positive effect in maintaining the strength of the immobilized limb. We know that. But the question is this, what type of strength training should you be doing to actually get that? Yeah. Now, and it's basically heavy load strength training, self-paced. So you determine how quickly you want to do the repetitions. On the other hand, if I wanted to use cross-education in somebody who's got a neurological injury, I'd actually want to pace the training task because when I start to get people moving or doing strength training to a beat, it induces greater neuroplasticity, which is what you need in people who have neurological disease. If it's a musculoskeletal injury, you can train the other limb and just make it heavy. Cross education is fascinating so as well. There, Spend a minute on that. Spend, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty cool. There's there's different ways in which you can do the training depending on the rehabilitation outcome that you want. Okay. So so tell me about if I'm a runner and I've got I'm immobilised for some reason in my my right limb. So give the listeners an example of cross education in the rehab. Yeah, let's space. just say you've gone for a you I know you've done some crazy cross country run that was twenty k's and you stuffed your ankle. Um, you know, the typical rehabilitation is going to be focusing on the injured ankle. But what happens with cross-education is you focus on the unaffected limb. And what you would do is triple extension. So you'd start with some calf raises, some dorsiflexion. You'd do some calf raises into squat, get the hip, knee, ankle working because that's how it works in running. And what we know is that when you strength train one limb, the opposite limb gets stronger. And that is cross-education. Now, in injury what we find is that it maintains the strength of the injured limb. Even if you're immobilised or not immobilised, it maintains it. So my advice is, if there's a period where you can't be weight-bearing, you need to target the other limb. And don't worry about getting a muscle implant because you already have one. Yeah. 
<laughs> so it's irrelevant. Fascinating. That's the stuff I wanted. This is why we're extracting every bit. Like Dawes could speak for four hours about this stuff, literally. I've heard him do it. Um, but that he's been really succinct for us today. That's crazy stuff. And a lot of us, until I met you, would not know that stuff. Like you've shown me the papers and it's you're on, you're on them all. But it's just unbelievable. The we, we do use so much unilateral work in field-based strength and conditioning. We and in rehab space, it's just it's the it's the if you're not doing it, you you're putting yourself a thousand. Well, well the back. problem with the rehab space is this is just my opinion. You, you can you can give us your opinion, brother. <laughs> is that people are too scared to load? Um, oh, we've spoken about this many times in yeah. our podcast. We we are all in the same camp. Yep. I think all our and and are. it's it's really simple. I mean, I mean, take a physiotherapy perspective. You know, um, they're they're too scared to load. A lot of them aren't now. Um, a lot of them are getting better. And they want clinical guidelines. Mm-hmm. They want to know what the guideline is for a particular injury and how you should load it. My argument's this. If I get a fat 45-year-old divorced, depressed man who's borderline diabetic and I do a strength test and I realise, okay, well, given the normative data provided by Exercise Sports Science Australia, he's weak, my job's to strengthen him. So the principles are going to be follow the principles and guidelines for getting people strong. If I get someone who's done a run and they've injured their knee, let's say they've got a pre-patella fat pad issue and they've been told, you know, just just relax, load the other limb. Do it through cross-education. Like, the, the principles are the same. If you have muscle weakness, it doesn't matter what the injury is, your job's to get it stronger, so the principles should be the same. The only thing that changes is how you pull up after each session, and that's where your clinical diagnostic skills come in there's no recipe there's no magic numbers Mm -hmm. but the numbers are lift heavy get strong within reason you've heard it so many times from us before and that's from one of the preeminent experts in the world telling you that listeners that that is legit and it's not a square peg for a square hole and it's certainly not wrapped up in a tiny little present with a nice bow on top sometimes it's a square peg for a round hole correct and it just it will work if you continue to load because it's the only way to get better Dorse, ridiculously fascinating. Tell us about a term in your, you you guys would use a lot um, in an applied sense and definitely a lot of our athletes would hear about it and we talk about it a little bit, but from your perspective, the force velocity curve and Mm. I guess from a neuromuscular view and how do we, as let's just use a team sport athlete again, force velocity curve, how do we continue to improve such things? So, So the force velocity curve is just simply a simple curve where you plot how much force you produce over how fast the movement is so what basically happens is the faster you move typically the less force you produce so if you think about moving your elbow really really fast you don't really feel the biceps contracting but if you move it slowly you tend to feel the biceps contracting so naturally there's a trade-off the faster you want to move say for instance in a bench press or bicep curl the actual less muscle force you produce. Now that's not ideal because when you look at team sports that require speed, strength, power, endurance, what you want is a combination of being able to apply a maximum amount of force in the quickest period of time. So if you could imagine that curve, so we've got force on the y-axis which goes to the sky and the x-axis which runs down the bottom horizontally. And let's just say that the x-axis is, is velocity and the y-axis is force, you could imagine if there was a high amount of force, what you tend to get is a low amount of velocity on the x-axis. 
But as you move across the spectrum on the x-axis, the more velocity you have or speed, the less force you produce. Now the whole idea of strength and conditioning is to actually move that curve to the right. So that means you can produce more force more quickly. And that's what strength training does. Now the question is, how do you train it? Now, um, if someone came to me and said my sprinting coach or my basketball coach or hockey coach or whatever it was, AFL coach says that I'm lacking power, can you train me? Oh, I could say yes. But my first question is gonna be, how quickly do you want it? Because in my opinion, the only way to improve speed strength is to periodize it based upon the principles of the force velocity curve. So what that means is you need to understand the curve, you need to understand the force component, you need to understand the velocity component, and then somehow you need to be able to combine the two together to actually push it. So um, it goes back to understanding power. So power fundamentally is force multiplied by the distance divided by your time. So if you've got long gangly limbs, you're not gonna be powerful because the physics tell us and the mathematics tell us that it's not gonna happen because your limbs are too long. Um, so we tend to find that the people that are the most powerful are the ones that can move a load over a short distance and they do it really quick. But having said that, we can train each person's force velocity curve. So the way you would tackle it is, is you'd periodize it. So someone come to me and said, power training, Dorse, train me. I'm gonna say, yep, I need you for 12 weeks. I can't do it in less than 12 weeks. So, and the reason why I can't is because I'm gonna work on each part of the force velocity curve. So the first bit I'm gonna work on is the force. So how do I do that? I lift heavy. So the goal of the first phase would be to um, focus on the force component of the force velocity curve. Heavy load strength training, learn to recruit and activate motor units and engage large muscle mass, turn on prime movers and switch off antagonists. Okay, because as you increase speed of movement, you increase the activity of muscles on both sides of the joint, which you don't necessarily want. So we need to be able to get all those neurological adaptations. So we can do techniques like heavy load strength training, which is three to five reps. Tempo, is there a tempo on that recommendation? Um, I don't provide a tempo because you're lifting heavy. Mm. So what well, I do is, is I recommend, and if you look at um, some of Digby Sales' work and David Beam's work, um, they came up with the concept called the intent to move hypothesis. So rather than worrying about how fast the external movement is, focus on the internal movement speed. Just try to move it quick. Get the rapid onset, recruit, discharge the motor units, have good technique, get that neurological response. And then what you do is you do that for four weeks. So you do a, within that four week though, is you do a, a three plus one protocol, like periodization protocol. So you increase an overload for three weeks, drop off for one week, um, which is the fourth week. And mm -hmm. that fourth week should be about 60% of the volume and intensity of what you did in week one. Very good. And then what you do is you think of the next part of the force velocity curve. Oh, that's speed. Now I'm gonna focus on speed. So you're gonna do some plyometrics or you might do some ballistic weight training. Um, so you're focusing purely on the reactive component. With that phase, Dorse, um, and you are the speed and power expert possibly in the nation, would you limp lock, obviously, longer recoveries because you're doing the recovery? So this well, it depends. Tell us about that. It depends. So, for instance, um, and I've had many discussions with many people about this, mm -hmm. normally when you train for plyometrics 
or you're training for for pure speed development, they talk about long recovery periods. Well, we've always heard about the central nervous system. Yeah, and, and we need to. But there's but there's conditions in which you need to be able to do these tasks explosively under fatigue. Absolutely, I so, love it. I love doing them with a little bit of fatigue in play as well. Yeah. So, but obviously we, we train different sports. We're Aussie rules and distance running endurance sport. But I'm not. Yeah, if we're talking to a uh, NRL athlete, for example. Yeah, or even basketball. Yeah. Like, if you look at basketball, let's say it's a grand final, it's the NCAA Division One grand final, there's, yeah. you know, one minute left and you're one point down. I'm guaranteeing the team that can be most reactive and most plyometric is probably going to get up and win. Under fatigue. Under fatigue. That's so, at, at, at some point, yeah. at some point... I understand. You need to do some of this under fatigue. Mm -hmm. um, but te technically, when you're looking at the force velocity curve, we're going to do it in a fresh state. Yeah, that's a great, um, great answer. So... The other way you can do this training is is, is through ballistic strength training. Um, so ballistic strength training is where you release the implement. So you might use 40 to, well, I think it's 30 to 45% of your 1RM, and you might do like bench throws. Yep. Um, now the benefit of that is two, two, two benefits. Traditional power training, which is typically 30 to 45% fast movements, to me doesn't really equal power mm. because power is force plus velocity. So all you're getting is the velocity component, not necessarily the force component. So one way around that is to do ballistics. Um, now the benefit of that is you don't get a detraining effect at the end range because you're releasing the implement. So they've done studies on a bench press that when you use 30 to 45% of your 1RM you do as quickly as possible, over 50% of your movement, your brain's trying to decelerate because you're too worried about snapping, hyperextending your joints. So if you release it, you get the full range effect but also ballistic training requires you to catch it mm -hmm. so force um as you catch you get an increase in force because of there's a the bars coming down so there's an element of speed so the eccentric loads actually a lot higher so that's quite specific so you could do that name it's very you, good so you do that for four weeks and then this is the trick you do a block of you can call it post-activation potentiation training, if you like, or complex training or contrast loading. And what you do is you look at the force velocity and curve and say, okay, well, I need force and velocity, so I'm going to put strength training and plyos together. And what you do with complex training is you perform a, resist, a resistive exercise that biomechanically complements the reactive plyometric exercise that follows in a superset fashion. Now... Most of the literature will say that the heavy load squat or the heavy load resistive exercise shouldn't exceed probably five repetitions. I think three is about the sweet spot. So you might do heavy load squats, rest for say 10 to 50 seconds, and then do a whole heap of jump squats, say you know, 10 to 12. And what you're doing is two things. One, you're adhering to the mathematics of the force velocity curve. You're doing, you've got the force component, which is your resistive, and then you've got the reactive velocity component, which is your plyos. But the other thing you're doing as well is that the heavy load resistive exercise actually primes the nervous system to enable you to do the plyometrics effectively. So one thing that's really important with plyometrics is, is you've got to reduce your contact time or what we call the amortization phase. Now, when we precondition the muscle, we reduce that, that contact time because there's greater reactivity in the muscle. So you actually get a better plyometric response. And all of a sudden, this whole force velocity curve starts to move. Yeah. But it takes time. It, we go back to what you start. We started with 
pack. Exact, exactly yeah. the same as what we, we condition started with. your yeah. arms feel light. Yeah, exactly <laughs> the same as what we started with 50 minutes ago. But I wanted to finish on the force velocity curve because Dorse is one of the like he just he explains it so well. And what we do in the weights room, what I've done for 15 years with all these thousands of athletes, has tried to marry in a lot of Dorse's stuff from the literature and I guess apply it. And that is textbook. And if you can do that with as an individual listening at home now to say, well, I know I need to create for, I need to produce force faster, or I need to get in the weights room and possibly give yourself a little um, mesocycle, 12 week little, mm, even, exactly. a big, a, even a bigger cycle. You make mm. it six months, you could do this for six months. Mm. There's nothing stopping you. But I think the bigger thing to take out of that, look, if you can rewind that over and over the last six minutes, well, everything you said has been fantastic, but that's fantastic for a any athlete. Doesn't matter who you are, and if you are a marathoner, you need this as well. Obviously, we can manipulate it in there, but you need to be doing this kind well, of stuff. But, but and think of in terms of endurance. Like I think of endurance just as, as a bunch of repeated stretch cycling, stretch shortening cycle movements. Um, and what happens is with complex training, is that you're exploiting the stretch shortening cycle. So, the flip side to complex training is contrast loading. And what happens here is you alternate between heavy and light loads, which could be the plyometrics and Absolutely. the resistive. And you can incorporate that into a pre-competition warm-up. Absolutely. And this is because we're exploiting the principle of post-activation potentiation. Now, if I go back, everything I've talked about is all about how do we increase the activation of the muscle. All starts in the brain. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing is everything we've talked about, TMS, TDCS, force velocity techniques to shift the force velocity curve, at the end of the day is really about priming the motor cortex to improve the ability to activate the muscle. We're going to get Dawson definitely over the next three months. And I'll, what I'll do is I'll pick a topic a quarter regarding endurance sport or team sport in general. And it'll be a little bit shorter than this and just really narrow in on the whys and what to do. Because I feel like he's got so much to offer the athletic world. Um, he's in a lab all day and he's obviously doing a lot of great research for the future but I feel like in current day space you've got so much to offer that people don't know this stuff and they could search for it but people are busy and they want this is a nice little one hour package they can just put in their car and it's it's absolutely fantastic and I've I'm listening I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat just listening to this stuff as well a lot of it I've heard for thousands of times and some of it I've only heard two or three times and that's the amount of times you've you got to just take it in take it in Rewind this and play it five or six times because you'll get something new out of every time. Final one for the distance runners. I drum on about the big three or four. Obviously, we're not talking physiology today, but lactate threshold, VO2 max. But running economy, and this is what we spoke about, contrast training, that kind of stuff is just fantastic. Just speak to these runners and say why they must be in the weights room. They just must be. So if you're not lifting and doing this stuff, you're doing yourself a huge disturbance, not just for injury prevention, but performance. Running economy is the number one performance indicator for mine. So Dawes will fill you in for the next minute and then we'll wrap well, it up. Well, I think the, the most important thing is, is um, a stronger musculoskeletal system is the foundation for any athletic performance, regardless of whether you're an endurance athlete, strength or power. Um, but more so, particularly with the ground reaction forces that are associated with running, um, it, it seems neglectful and maybe not serious enough about your running if you're not doing some form of weight training. Now, the goal of the weight training isn't necessarily to build muscle mass. What it is there is to activate 
muscle so you can cope with that ground reaction force. Now, the issue around running economy, there's plenty of studies out there to show that strength training has a positive effect on running economy. Now, um, and it would make sense because you're more stable, you're more upright, and you have a better base around your hips to actually get your legs to work mm-hmm. more effectively. Um, but the main thing is is being able to cope with the forces that come in. Now, this could be time for another discussion, yeah, um, yeah. but there's a thing called the muscle tuning hypothesis. Um, and ground reaction forces in running are quite high, okay? So they can be up to six times your body weight. We've spoken many times about the, the body um, weight. And these ground reaction forces come in as a, as a frequency, as a vibration frequency. So um, the only way the body deals with these frequencies is by increasing muscle activation and damping them. So if you are getting soft tissue injuries and you're getting so-called overuse injuries, and I don't believe in overuse injuries because coaches who are good don't overtrain, but what happens is you've he, got to... He did use his fingers, the quotation marks, I like it. What it means Very is passionate. that maybe your neuromuscular system is a bit underdone, hence you're getting abnormal loading and you can't deal with it. And then that just manifests as an injury. So um, you should be doing weight training at a minimum because it will improve your ability to dampen those forces as they come in, which will improve your running economy. But that's a whole different discussion. No, well, that's going to lead us into part two over the next two months. So we'll get you in for part two and we'll definitely kick off with that topic because I feel like we've got a wide range of different guests on the deep dive and obviously me and Shark on the catch-up having a bit of a humorous look at endurance sport. But it's nice once a month to get an expert in their field in and you're not going to find a greater expert than a man that's travelled the world talking about this stuff literally to tens of thousands of students and professionals. Uh, He is one of the greats. I thank Dr. Dawson Kidgel, but you won't be the last time you hear his voice. Listeners, if you've got any questions for Dawson, please don't be scared to write on our socials on Runners Facebook or Runners Instagram because any question from you would be definitely a question worth answering because I'm sure there's a lot of people thinking the same thing. But we'll get Dawson on in the next couple of months on the Coach's Corner. Dawson, I thank you for your time. Listeners, please do something today that's going to make you better tomorrow, starting definitely by listening to the last hour over and over and over again. I have been Rick Mirabella and this has been Runners Radio.